to uh, add my welcome to Dan's at the beginning of this fall term as we start the book of Proverbs. And as you turn to Proverbs 20 on page 542, um, I just I want to encourage you all to read the book of Proverbs. Um, if we manage to uh, act according to our schedule, we should be out of Proverbs in December. So if you read a chapter or two a day, that means you'll get through it three or four times and you'll know a lot more about it than you did <laughs> when you started. And chapter 20, I'm most interested to know how I'm going to do this today. Chapter 20. The thing about Proverbs is it comes to us at a completely different angle from every other book in the Bible. It's not a letter. You know, but it is written from a father to a son. It's not commandments, but there are commands in it. It's not narrative, but there are stories, and your story and my story is in there. And the thing about the difference of Proverbs is that it is very different from the current Christian pieties that are so wearying to us. You know, the overly rational Christian who says, look, um, I know my doctrine, God's given me enough, let me figure out the rest, I'm just going to get on with it. Or the overly spiritual Christian who says, the Holy Spirit wanted me to shop at Nordstrom's because he gave me a parking spot right outside. <laughs> or the postmodern Christian who has trouble trusting words and wants to be authentic and uh, I'm not going to believe anything until I've experienced it. I must be true to myself. The thing about Proverbs is it deals with the invisibility of God. Where is God on Monday, Tuesday, in my leisure, at work, in the ambiguity of the decisions I make? And Proverbs shows God at work, not just in the big trumpet-blasting ways but deeply embedded in the ordinary circumstances of daily life. One commentator says, In the Old Testament, life of faith was not three miracles a day and a holy war, but the ongoing life of learning that we don't just trust God for the big things, but in the ordinary circumstances. And you know, every culture has proverbs. Every family has... My family had proverbs. My mother used to make up proverbs. And I can tell some of you to them, tell them to you later. They're short, memorable sayings, and I think it's part of being made in the image of God, naming things and understanding the world. Here is a Chinese proverb. A bird does not sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. Isn't that lovely? Um, here is an, Ethiop an Ethiopian proverb. If you pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other also. <laughs> And lots of English proverbs are contradictory. You know, too many cooks spoil the broth, many hands make light work. If the early bird gets the worm, haste makes waste. Yeah. The thing here, the thing that's different here, is that these proverbs come as the flower of God's revelation in the Old Testament. If you keep your hand in chapter 20 and turn back to chapter 1, to the first verse of Proverbs, you can see what I mean. Proverbs 1.1, the book begins like this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, 
king of Israel, which means this is no ordinary king. This is not just some other ancient uh, Near Eastern potentate. This is God's king who has been anointed with the Holy Spirit and is the Messiah of God. And this particular king prayed to God for the gift of wisdom and God gave it to him. So the book of Proverbs is not, you know, it's not Solomon strolling around the temple compound or the palace compound and saying, there's an anthill. Hmm, I think I'll write a proverb. (laughs) Ultimately, it's the wisdom of God. And although the Proverbs look like wise, a collection of wise observations, ultimately they come to us from God himself. So if you turn over to chapter 2, verse 6, Solomon tells us, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And therefore, 4 and 5, If you seek it like silver and search for it, As for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Which means that if they're doing their work, as we read Proverbs, we ought to come to know God better and to love him and to live a life of fear and faith. But the Proverbs proper don't start until chapter 10. So if you turn over to chapter 10, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, and away we go. And then after chapter 10, we have 375 Proverbs. I did not count them. I got that from a book. (laughs) Chapters 1 to 9 are how to read this book. And they say two things to us. One, uh, what we need to read this book is hunger and humility. Uh, It is not a quick fix. Proverbs is about the slow, long-term character development. It's not about mastering facts or knowledge. And if you're not humble and if you're not hungry for the wisdom of God, the book will just be a frustration to you. And the second thing the early chapters teach us is that there is a particular shape to the Proverbs. The 375 Proverbs are not just 375 diamonds thrown out on a black piece of velvet. They are set very carefully in a jewellery setting and they relate to each other. So, you know, as we read through the first half of chapter 20, as you followed along, you can think, well, that makes sense at one level. But when you ask the question, why are these put together here in this way? I want to confess to you, I'm not always sure. (laughs) And I know the commentaries are not always sure. But the real value is thinking and meditating on them as they occur together, not just taking one out of context. And the best thing we can do is to read it leisurely and prayerfully. And the promise is, if we do that, the Lord will give us wisdom. And I've suggested today that we dive straight into chapter 20, which makes two main points and shows us ultimately why we need this book. And the first point chapter 20 makes is about our single most staggering human ability. We as humans, it is our greatest skill and talent. And it's the most widespread and pervasive and universal but least understood ability that we have And it is our amazing capacity for self-deception. And there are four summary verses that I want to point you to. Verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. 
In the book of Proverbs, deep is never good. Deep is dangerous. Deep water, you drown. Inaccessible, uh, unfathomable, life-threatening. The simple statement is that we do not and we cannot know the depths of our own hearts. This is what the Bible teaches. We skim along the surface. Sometimes we look a bit deeper and we see what's below the surface. But there are dark and murky depths that are beyond our knowing. When we come to the book of Jeremiah, a couple of books later, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer is, the next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. This is the Bible view of us, that we do not understand ourselves, we are unsearchable to ourselves because our hearts deceive us. This is a pillar of Christian self-understanding and why we need this book. Well, look at verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Because we don't know our hearts, we do not have the ability to really clean ourselves. If I'm deceived, if I've got this deceiving thing at the center of my being, I don't see where I need God and I, I cannot hope to make myself spiritually pure or right to him. Well, look at verse 24. A man, and this is a man and woman, it's uh, inclusive. Steps are from the Lord how then can one understand their way? They can't. Verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching his innermost parts. God alone searches our hearts to their depths. God alone knows us. And he is engaged at every step of our lives. Our hearts are so slippery and so crafty that apart from God's word, we will all live lives of self-deception and hypocrisy. There is a recent study that gives a new name to this. It comes from economists, of all people, uh, from Princeton and from Toulouse, economic schools. They call it motivated reasoning. And they've released a study that says the more educated you are, the more you avoid and deny facts that disagree with your worldview. The way we collect facts today through digital devices uh, which makes everything more accessible and indelible, means that we have developed strategies for ignoring anything that contradicts our beliefs. When we search for news, we consume what we find and filter out everything that we don't agree with. It's called strategic ignorance. Actually, it's self-deception, but that's a better name for it, strategic ignorance. You cannot see reality. We cannot see reality about ourselves and about God. Now... Okay, how does that help us read the chapter? Well, look at verse 1, for example. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, or beer a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This is not a sudden one-verse condemnation of drinking too much alcohol. This is in the context of the chapter that shows us how foolish we are. And as the drunk reels around and holds forward, you know, speaks about how clever they are, this is a picture of us that we think we understand ourselves and have wisdom, but the more we speak about ourselves, the less wisdom, the more foolish we show ourselves to be, in fact. We, are, we lack self-consciousness and self-control. We are restless and noisy and inebriated with our own wisdom. Or look at verse 4. 
The slugger does not plough in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. It's not a sudden piece of advice that you should all work very hard. It's a picture of how out of touch with reality we are. We live for the now and we expect with great entitlement that we'll be supplied within the future and when we don't, we cry about it. Or look at verse 6. Many a man, many a woman proclaims their own steadfast love, but a faithful person who can find? See, here is our staggering ability for self-deception. I am a good person. You are, we're all good people, right? Do you find it amazing when someone in a family murders some other people that the family on the news say that they were a good person? Oh, they're a good boy. It's just, it's just self-deception. And then from verse 20 to verse 23, we have an extended example from the marketplace. And if you don't see yourself in this example, it just shows how good you are at self-deception. Verse 10 and verse 20 say the same thing. That unequal weights and unequal measures are an abomination to the Lord. Right there in the marketplace, okay? The place you don't dare talk about God. God is there. Not as a spectator, but as an active participant. And, and every kind of fraud and every kind of cheating and every, every time we try to gain a personal advantage and disadvantage others, it turns God's stomach. All that hurts and harms other people, no matter how much its standard business practice involves God. Every decision either moves his blessing forward or moves the curse forward. And have a look at how it works in verses 14 to 17. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take a man's garment when he's put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward... His mouth will be full of gravel. It's wonderful. It's so realistic. You know, deceit is the normal standard op operating procedure. It's absolutely normal. It's absolutely expected in the marketplace. It's how we gain financial advantage by our clever dealing and our clever, clever words. I mean, look at verse 14. The buyer has just assumed that the seller is greedy and has upped the price. That's normal, isn't it? The seller wants to cheat me, right? So the buyer says, look, look, it's got a ding in the door, the tyres aren't uh, what you said, and this model had trouble with airbags. Bad, bad. We do it. We do it all the time. But it's a lie. We don't really think it's bad. We just want it at a lower price. And when we get the deal, we go away and we brag about how clever we are. Verse 15 is true. There is value in gold and abundance of money. Proverbs never sneers at money. But you can never get what's truly valuable by lying or deceiving and cheating others. What has true value in itself is the knowledge of God and walking in his way. But that doesn't mean we ought to be naive as Christians. Verse 16. Don't put up, don't put up security for a stranger because you'll lose your shirt. We ought to do due diligence. And verse 17, the point is that deceit of any form undoes the blessing of God. You can make a lot of bread by deceit. But we don't live by bread alone. And what, 
getting bread by deceit does is it damages our capacity to enjoy the blessing of God. It's like breaking your teeth on gravel. You lose the ability to enjoy what you've gathered by selfishness. It's the same dynamic in verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. It's God alone who gives the ability to enjoy things. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, the son who rushes to get his inheritance, he loses the capacity to enjoy God's blessing. He's deceived by thinking that his meaning and happiness is in the inheritance and not in God. This is the big point, big first point of the chapter, and I know it takes some digesting. This is what happens in the marketplace, happens in every area of our life, because we do not know ourselves because of our staggering capacity for self-deception. But before we look at the second great truth, and you'll be glad to know it's a positive one, um, just notice the tone of the passage, how compassionately this passage runs. There's no cynicism or despair. We don't have time to look at it carefully, but did you notice the Proverbs are paired together? So if you look at verse 6, uh, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. It's paired with verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. There is a life of blessing. It is possible to live under the righteousness of God, even though we're deceived. And at verse 9, even the way this is expressed has longing in it. Who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. We long for purity. And this brings us to the second great point. Not just the great power of our self-deception, but there is a power which is greater than our self-deception. And the second point is the great power of humility. The Proverbs doesn't hold out false hope. It opens the door for us to walk the way of life and hope. So look at verses 12 and 13. The hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Love, not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. God has taken the initiative. He's given us every sense that we have. We owe it to him and we owe it to ourselves to exercise our senses toward him. And again, when he says love, not sleep, he's not talking about general all-round laziness. You should never lie in after nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. He's talking about what we love. See, Proverbs is God preaching to us. And as we read it and as we meditate on it, it has the capacity to change our loves, what we desire. It's not going to happen if we have our eyes closed and our ears closed, which means, brothers and sisters, that we have a decision to make every time we come to the book of Proverbs. Am I going to trust what my heart says or am I going to trust what the book says? Or look down to verse 30. Blows that wound, cleanse away evil, strokes make clean the innermost parts. Now, I know it's not nice hearing the fact that we can't understand ourselves. It's especially not nice that we have this ability of self-deception and that we're contaminated by it. I know it's not nice to hear that. And that's why we need this book. Who else is going to tell us the truth about ourselves? 
I mean, if it was just my opinion, you, you'd be really right to ignore it. But if it's God's word, then it may have the power to change. You know what it's like to have friends in your life who love to tell you the truth and love you enough to tell the truth. I seem to have had an inordinate number of friends. <laughs> and what they tell you don't always want to hear it, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Proverbs is written to people who are open to correction, who are teachable, whose hearts are soft. And the obvious question under this second point is where does humility come from? And the answer in chapter 20 is that humility comes from knowing the king. The power of humility is in the fear of the Lord, knowing the one who is wisdom in himself. You see, our humility and the king are not two separate things. We don't go off here and practice our humility and try and get as humble as we can and then come back to the king. No, 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 we gain our humility as we come to know the king and grow in our knowledge of the king. Four times in the chapter, Solomon refers to the king. And sometimes in Proverbs, the king is just the king, an ordinary king. But in this chapter, he is speaking about God's anointed king because this king stands between God and his people. And God has given to this king in chapter 20 his eternal throne. And this king sees through human deception and gets to the bottom of human hearts. And with the power of life and death in his hands, he is above all, says this chapter, kind, kind. He uses his power for our good. This doesn't come across so well, but look at verse 8. The king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Now, the winnow means separating out the wheat from the bad stuff, the chaff. This is not vindictive or spiteful power. It is the power of cleansing, of separating out what's bad and good. In other words, to really cleanse us spiritually, God has to separate us from our evil. And he has to go into the depths of our corruption and winnow away. And God stands behind this king because of his throne, this king who's not taken in by evil, who sees us and separates and destroys and deals with the evil. Well, look at verses 26 to 28. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. That is, he separates, slices the evil. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching out all his inmost parts. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. It is God's honour alone to search our hearts. I can't see what's in your heart. You can't see what's in mine. God has delegated this work to his king. And the thing about this king that Solomon wants us to grasp above all else is that his name is steadfast love. That everything this king does is established on and rooted on and grows out of steadfast love. This is a great Old Testament Bible word. It is the heartbreaking kindness of God who, as his people turn away and turn away and turn away, he reaches out and saves and rescues in kindness and mercy and compassion over and over and over again, giving what we don't deserve, sharing his love, 
bringing us back to the tree of life. And I'm glad you can't see into my heart, you'd never listen to me anyway, but to have one who is just and righteous, who sees to the depths, whose name is love, that makes me want to be humble. That he should come and ascend his throne by dying in my place. That his love took him to the cross makes me want to follow him through the grave and to that throne. And I finish, I just point out how very, very much the opposite this is of the current secular self-salvation project. We're all immersed in this. We think that the answer is inside me. Self-understanding is the way to a good life. Be true to yourself. If only I could understand myself more deeply, I'd be more confident and free and unafraid. And don't get me wrong, it's very helpful to have as much self-understanding as we can. The Lord deliver us from those who have no self-understanding, particularly those in authority. It's very good to do every personality profile you can and to listen and learn. And part of the, prover- part of the purpose of Proverbs is to give us more self-understanding and to show that we can never get to the bottom of our hearts. That we're full of contradictions and twists and deceit. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, which is why we need the king and why we need his words. And we need the power of humility to live well in God's world. Uh, That comes from knowing that God has an appointed king whose kindness and steadfast love alone has the power to cleanse and renew and restore us. Who gave us his life and gave us his words that we might walk the path of wisdom knowing the fear of the Lord. Jesus. Amen.